morning. Delight to be back here with you this morning. And we'll be continuing in our um, passage. If you turn to 1 John chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. If you remember last week, we were looking at verses 1 through 12 in chapter 5. As we had asked the question, Christian, what do you believe? And John talks about core beliefs that a Christian needs to have in order to be saved, to walk with the Lord. So we'll continue uh, in 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. John writes this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you be with us this morning as we look at your word, as you challenge us, as you encourage us, Lord, that you would open our hearts to your message. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I like to read professionally, but also recreationally. So sometimes I'll be reading a book on theology and then something recreationally. Uh, sometimes it's uh, a lot of fun. My son got me hooked on to the Vince Flynn books for the Mitch Rapp Assassin, American Assassin series. Any of you men read those books? Uh, there's a few of you who are brave enough to, uh, to raise your hand there. But also I like to read some of the classics uh, and sometimes reread those books. Recently I finished reading uh, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And then I read all the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, I am a big kid at heart. Those are great books to read. Uh, and so, again, I like to get a mix there. And I've read Pilgrim's Progress. How many have read Pilgrim's Progress? Again, that's a great book. The PCA now has a children's version of that that they are selling. And so in Pilgrim's Pro Progress by John Bunyan, the narrator speaks of a dream of a man named Christian and great names in this book there. Uh, he starts a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And I'll highlight a small portion of that book. He enters by the wicked gate on his way to the celestial city and he meets the gatekeeper, Goodwill. He's led through the gate which opens up to the holy way, a straight and narrow path that leads to the celestial city. And Christian comes to the cross which is on a high hill by holy way and there by the cross all of his heavy burden of sins and woes fall into an open grave. As he continues on the path, on the holy way, the holy way is fenced in with high fences to keep people from coming over the fence but go through the wicked gate on the holy way on the way to the celestial city and on his way two men they jump the fence and what are their names formalist and hypocrisy and again I love these names there and he and uh, Christian rebukes them and says you should not be jumping the fence and they say well we always do that well as they're on the way they come to the hill of difficulty and foremost in hypocrisy, they decide that they are going to go around on the easy path against Christian's advice. They get lost and they perish. 
Well, as I was reading this, I thought of an incident many, many, many years ago when I was in flight school. Before I went to seminary, I was a Navy pilot. And I went through uh, flight school and survival training back in 1976 uh, at Eglin uh, Field in uh, Florida. And at the end, we were put into teams. We were given a map. We were given a compass. They dropped us off on a starting point and said, you need to get to this end point. But along the way, you have to meet this intermediate checkpoint. Now, we had a Marine with us, so we thought we were in pretty good shape. He'd been through his training at Quantico. We figured he knew how to navigate in the woods. And he did, kind of. And the way it would work is the first team to get there wins. Well, we were the first team to get there. But we missed the intermediate checkpoint and we were disqualified. A little bit embarrassing, particularly for our Marines. But you have to be on the path. You have to be on the way. And Jesus talks about that when he says, Enter by the narrow gate. This is in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We are all on a spiritual journey. Where are you on your spiritual journey to maturity? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you growing in a way that supports Redeemer's vision and mission? Are you growing to maturity? Are you being discipled? Are you discipling others? As Christian faced opposition and difficulty on his journey to the celestial city, we too will experience the same. And John here in his epistle, he addresses challenges that his readers will face and how they can know that they are on track and what pitfalls they need to avoid. Now, there are many questions that people have as they are on the spiritual journey. Can God really be known? Does God answer prayer? Is there more than one way to heaven? Is it normal for a Christian to have doubts about his salvation? So can we know these answers and where can we find these answers? And the answer, of course, is found in the scripture and John addresses a number of those. So our principle this morning is this. Our firm assurance is based upon who Jesus is and what he has done. And so this morning we'll be looking at two things. The assurance of eternal life in verses uh, 13. And then after that, the assurance of answered prayer in verses 14 through 17. Let's look at the assurance of eternal life. And what we find out here in verse 13 is that this epistle was written to give assurance. John writes this. I write these things, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And when John uses the word know, he writes it in a purpose clause that we can know with certainty. Why? That we have eternal life. And he writes about these things. Well, what are these things that he talks about? The near context certainly refers to verses 5 through 12, but he speaks of the entire epistle of 1 John. And this is consistent with how John has done things. And at the end of the Gospel of John, verse 20 through 21, John writes this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Do those things sound familiar? We discussed those last week as some of the core beliefs that John says we must have. And so he writes these things so that we can have assurance. In fact, the way, again, he writes it is with an emphasis on assurance. 
God wants us to know. John wants us to know. And what he does in this epistle is he lays out various tests along the way. He said, this is what you should do. This is what you should know. And why does he do this? He wants to reveal the false teachers that are spreading false doctrine in the church. But also it will reveal true believers. So he lays out these various tests. What are they? If you look in verse 1-7, and I'll read these, um, he writes, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses from all sin. So he says we need to walk in the light. He says in verse 110 that we must not deny that we are sinners. He says in verse uh, 2 through 3 through 5, he talks about obedience. This is one of the markers. John writes, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. He talks about love for fellow believers. In chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You'll also find that uh, in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. He says, you must believe in God's incarnate Son. What is that? That Christ came in the flesh. We talked about this a little bit last week. In John, uh, 1 John 1, 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is from God. So must believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Must believe that He's the Christ. Must believe that He's the Son of God. The heresies was teaching against that. The false teachers were teaching against that. He talks about practicing righteousness. Uh, verse 229 he writes, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. And in 310 he writes this. Again we see this difference between believers and unbelievers he writes by this it is evident that we are children of God and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother so he combines a couple of things so John is laying out these road markers he's laying out this is what you need to be doing on your walk with the Lord these don't earn our salvation by the way but they reflect our nature as a true child of God, one who has trusted in Christ for salvation. Think of it as a road map. Now, for you young folks, you may not know what I'm talking about because now there's GPS. But in the olden days, how many went to AAA and got your trip tick? There are a few of you who did. And what they do is it was almost like a little strip chart and they say, I want to go here and they would lay it out your route on all these highways. Well, we used to do something similar when I was uh, flying A6s and flying low levels. And what we would do was we would lay out our map and, and we would practice and we would fly at 500 feet at 360 knots, about 420 miles an hour, about 7 miles a minute at 500 feet. So we're moving along at a pretty good clip. 
But the training was to go in low, supposedly under the radar, so you get to the target, bomb your target, and get away without getting shot down. That's the way it's supposed to work. And so we would practice that. And so we would have these trip charts, kind of like the AAA trip tech. But we would have our route, and we go on this uh, point alpha. And you go on a certain heading for a certain amount of time, and then you would turn to another heading for a certain amount of time, and you have all these things on your chart. And you'd have, okay, I should have this amount of fuel. And along the way, you would mark secondary points. Okay, at such and such a time, there should be a bridge on the left. On such and such a time, there should be a power plant on the right. And you're tracking this. And if you're on track, all these things should line up. But if they don't, you know that you're off track. You need to get back on course. That is what John is doing. He says, follow these things. Are you walking in the light or darkness? Are you obedient? If not, you need to get back on course. You need to get back on the path of the Christian life. Again, that's not what earns our salvation, but it's a reflection of who we are in Christ. As he talks about why he writes this, he also continues, verse 4, he writes that we may have joy. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He also writes in verse 1 that we may not sin. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So these are some of the things that he writes. And he uses the word to know, to know with certainty. So that we can know what the Lord has in store for us, so we can know where we are walking. And it's an indirect command in the sense that so that you may be sure. Why is that? We have an enemy who wants you to doubt your salvation. There are false teachers who are writing what the Bible says is wrong. And they want to destroy your faith. Or if they can't destroy your faith, they want to get you off course. And so, John writes these things. But think about it this way. As a human parent, do you want your children to know that you love them and that their status is secure with you? And so God is the same way. He wants us to know that we are secure in our walk with Him. Why? Because He is our loving Heavenly Father. And as we talked about last week, He also gives us an internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And our spirit is confirmed by the Holy Spirit that we are His. And He gives us that testimony in our hearts. And so he writes this to give us assurance. But as he talks about the assurance of eternal life, he also talks about belief in the name of Jesus is the basis for this assurance. He tells us this in verse 5 of chapter 5. Again, we talked about it last week. Where he writes, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And he talks about 5.1 that Jesus is the Christ. Works is not the basis of our salvation. It is saving faith. Again, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a classic verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Remember how that verse goes? Not because of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by faith. We're saved by belief. And this assurance is given to Christians, not to heretics. Again, that's what John is dealing with. With those who had a false belief, with those who are teaching a false belief about Jesus. And again, John does this with, this with emphasis in the sentence. In the Greek, it would read something like this. I write these things to you 
for the purpose that you may know that you have eternal life to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. John wants to make it clear that this assurance is based upon those who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's where salvation is and in no one else. It's not in good works. It's not in other false religions. It's found in Jesus Christ and John wants to emphasize that. Again, and that's in view of the Gnostic threat, one of the early heresies. And what John is saying is that orthodox belief in Jesus is important. It's essential. He was dealing with those who had a defective view of Jesus, who did not believe that he came in the flesh, who did not believe that he was the Christ, who did not believe that he was the Son of God. And without that, there is no salvation. They had a defective view of sin. And what they believed was that the spirit world was good and the material world was bad. And they had this view that God could not be known. And by the way, the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians was called a demiurge. And he was bad. Why? Because he created material things. He created the world. And so that was a belief that John had to deal with. And John is saying, no, in view of these threats, in view of these heresies, this is what you must believe. And intellectual assent is not enough. It must be true belief. Again, John tells us in his gospel, John 3.36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And James says, and he mocks his readers, he says, you believe that God is one? He says, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. And what we see is that belief goes hand in hand with obedience. The word in John 3.36 that is translated do not obey can also be translated disobedience or disbelief. Disobedience and disbelief go hand in hand. And so we must believe in, that's what John writes, believe in the name of the Son of God. It expresses the faith of personal commitment. It expresses the faith of total reliance upon Christ. Total devotion to Jesus. It's trusting in Him alone for salvation and nothing else. It's not trusting in your works. It's not trusting in your good looks. It's not trusting in the faith of your relatives. It's trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Believe in. And John says we must believe in the name of the Son of God. Well, what's that name? He tells us earlier in the chapter, that name is Jesus. And when he says name, he's speaking of, the name is used to express the nature and character of the person to whom the name belongs. And that name is Jesus. When we do this, he says, we have eternal life. And there's a now and a not yet aspect. We can experience the blessings of eternal life now. But there's so much more to come. There's a now and there's a not yet aspect. And there's so much more to come. But it's received by faith. Many years ago when I was at the academy, there is only one academy, the Naval Academy. And uh, we were at the beach doing beach evangelism. And I remember talking with a guy who was leading me on. He says, well, I can believe in a chair if I want to. And I'm trying to be nice to him. And I'm thinking, what an idiot. The point is this. You can believe in anything that you want, but the object of your faith 
must be valid. And it's not how fervent your faith is. It must be valid. You can believe in other religions fervently, and there are those who do. But the object must be valid. Now, on a carrier, the bridge where they steer the ship is on the ninth story. And so I can go up to the ninth story, and I can believe in my heart that I can fly. And I can step out in there, I can start moving my arms, and I can step off the ship, and what's going to happen? Well, they say on the loudspeaker system, medical emergency, medical emergency, because I would be in trouble. So it's not how much you believe. The object of faith must be valid. And who is that? It must be Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. So what's the application here? Have you come to saving faith in Christ? Do you know Him as your Savior? If not, what do you need to do? If you have, do you have assurance? Can you give that assurance to other folks? Now let's look at other things that are of concern here. Again, we started off by talking about the assurance of eternal life. Verses 14 through 17, John talks here about the assurance of answered prayer. And he begins in verse 14 when he talks about the confidence that is stated. He writes this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Note, what is prayer when we come to prayer? As one person said, prayer is the natural activity of the child of God. It should be as natural as breathing. And here is linked to the specific issue of praying for those in the community who have fallen into sin. When he says, um, and this is confidence, that is what follows. And he speaks of confidence that we can have before God. And that's because of Christ. Again, in John, uh, 1 John uh, 3.21, he writes, Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And that is a tremendous privilege that we have. And the word for confidence was used in the Greek political sphere for freedom of speech for full citizens. It had the idea of right of speech. It had the idea of courage to speak with candor. It came to be used in a uh, moral sense of openness to God, a fearlessness and confidence that allowed one to speak freely to the Lord in prayer. Now, this presupposes a saving faith. It presupposes a close spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It presupposes faithful obedience to Him. It means listening, as John talks about in John 10, to the Good Shepherd, because Jesus is the Good Shepherd. And what does he say? I know my own, and my own know me. They hear my voice, and they follow. Do we have confidence in the voice of Jesus? Again, I think back to what was such an important part of my life. Again, before I got out of the Navy to go to seminary, I was a flight instructor. My main job was teaching students land on aircraft carriers. And, I, and every five weeks, I would take 10 students out for their first time to land on a carrier. Now, if you think about driving, think about teaching them to land on a carrier. But they are by themselves when they land on a carrier for the first time. And so it was important that they would have confidence in me, but that I had confidence in them. They needed to listen to my voice. And when we did the training, I would say this to get their attention. If you don't listen to me, you'll die. If you listen to me, you'll live. That would get their attention. So it is with Jesus. We need to listen to him. And so when we get ready to go out to the ship, they would have 10 um, flights on the field. 
Sometimes I would give them calls that they did not need. I would give them a power call, even though they were fine. Or I'd give them a lineup call, even though they were fine. Why? I wanted them to listen to my voice, not what they saw. Because out there at the ship, I would see things before they would. I wanted them to respond. They needed to have confidence in me. And out in the fleet, you got to know who your landing signals officers were. And if you had trouble, and there are many a dark night I could see a pilot having trouble because his lights would be going back and forth across the horizon. He's a bad case of vertigo. And he would say, and they would call us paddles. Paddles, bad case of vertigo. Roger 501, I got you. LSO talk down, listen to me. And as they heard, they go, oh, there's that voice of Joe. I know Joe. He will get me down. He had confidence. And so they needed confidence in us. Do you have confidence in the voice of Jesus? Are you listening? And that's what John is talking about here. We can have confidence that we listen to Jesus. We have answered prayer. With this confidence, we can have the expectation of answered prayer. He continues. And again, he writes this. This confidence we have, he says in verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's expectational that God hears us. We can have confidence before God because he listens favorably to what we say. Again, the writer to Hebrews says something similar. He says, let us in with confidence. Same word. He says, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence before God. And it's based upon that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he writes in 3, uh, 21 through 22, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence, same word again, before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And so we have confidence because of obedience. We are delight in the Lord. The psalmist writes in Psalm 37, 4, he says this, Delight yourselves in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Notice the order. Delight yourselves. The Hebrew says take exquisite delight in the Lord. And then He'll give you the desires of your heart. So often we reverse that. Lord, give me the desires of my heart and then I'll delight in you. That's not the way it works. We delight in the Lord. We align our heart with His heart. He doesn't align himself with us. It doesn't work. We align ourselves with him. John also, in his gospel, chapter 15, he talks about conditions for answered prayer, and he writes this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. And so the idea is that we need to abide in Christ. We need to remain in Christ. And his word needs to remain and to abide in us. Are we spending time in the Lord's Word? Are we spending time in fellowship? Are we reflecting upon that? It needs to be part of us, and we, that's how we abide in Christ. The will of the one praying should coincide with God's will. John, as he writes in his Gospel in chapters 14, 15, and 16, talks about asking in his name. One commentator says this. He says, The latter requirements, prayer in his name, and according to his will are virtually the same. The fundamental characteristic of all truly Christian intercession 
is that the will of the person who offers prayer should coincide with God's will. Prayer is not a battle, but a response. It consists of lifting our wills to God, not trying to bring His will down to us. We align with Him, not He with us. And he says, even though it says if, it doesn't mean that maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. It can almost be translated with a sense of security. Since he hears us, and we know he does in verse 14, we know that we have what we have asked for. No uncertainty is indicated here. And there's a logical progression of thought. So what John is saying, within conditions, we have the assurance of answered prayer. What is that condition here? According to his will. That'd be an interesting study. Another sermon to, to see what those things are. So we talk about um, the confidence stated. We talked about the, ex, uh, the confident expectation. Finally we go here as he talks about the assurance of answered prayer. Answered prayer illustrated verses 16 and 17. He writes, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, difficult for us to understand. Yet, we think it was clear to John's readers as to what he meant. But what it does, it speaks of prayer for a straying Christian because he talks about brothers. For brothers or sisters in the Lord who are straying in sin. It shows that we have a responsibility to pray for them. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And he continues on that. Paul in Galatians 6.1 says uh, this. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so this does not speak of losing one's salvation. Because God gives us salvation. He gives us eternal life. And no one can snatch us from his hand. What is the point of the verse? Is this. That the sinful habit of a believer is the object of confident prayer. Now, John throws in this parenthetical thought in verse 16. And he, and he says this. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. What in the world is he talking about? Context in the epistle is also helpful. And John is not saying don't pray, but he's saying it's not the object of confident prayer. But he does not forbid prayer. He commands prayer for when you see a brother or sister straying in the Lord. Well, what is this sin that leads to death? It's deliberate sin. It's all the things that he talked about earlier. It is the continuing sin of the Gnostics and the false teachers. It's walking in darkness. It's denying that you're a sinner and calling God a liar. It's hatred of God's people. It's rejection of the truth of the incarnation that Jesus came in the flesh. It's rejection of Jesus as the Christ. It's rejection of Jesus as the Son of God. As Jesus says, it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Attributing to Satan the works of God. Because apart from Christ... Apart from the Holy Spirit, no one can be saved. Because we cannot save ourselves. That's that sin that leads to death. And John says, sin is not to be taken lightly. He says in verse 17, All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. He comes back to that. 
So sin is not to be taken lightly. All unrighteousness is sin. But I also say this. That apart from Christ, all sin leads to death. All sin. Every Christian may be confident of God's standing and grace and forgiveness. You know what did he say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that promise is only for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. So this morning we looked at the assurance of eternal life. We looked at the assurance of answered prayer. So how are we doing? Are we praying? Are you praying? Are we meeting the conditions for successful prayer? Are we praying for our brothers and sisters who are straying in the Lord? Are we abiding in Christ? Is His Word abiding in us? There's some great books on prayer. Power Through Prayer by Ian Bounds. You can have prayer journals. We can write out your prayer requests and see how the Lord has answered those. And we can experience the joy of answered prayer. Why? Because of our relationship with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us everything that we need for salvation. And you do not want us to be in doubt of our relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came in the flesh, died for our sins, rose again and was resurrected, and defeated sin, and defeated the enemy, that we had a lively hope. Lord, we thank you and praise you for that. May we walk in a way that pleases you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.